Jaden again for coming. Amen. Thank you, Jaden. By the way, he has a whole bunch of his, uh, his CDs on the back there, and uh, he said uh, he's not going to stand by the table. If you want one, just take one. If you want to leave a donation, fine. But uh, thank you again for ministering to us today. Let's have a word of prayer as we get into God's Word this morning. Lord, thank you for the opportunity that we have to be here today. Thank you, Lord, that we are part of your amazing family, and we give you praise and honor and glory. You deserve it. And you're right here, right now with us. Lord, we have come to worship you today. You deserve it. And be with us now as we open up your word, God. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I've been in a series entitled Questions by Jesus. We've been going over some of the questions that Jesus asked. Last week, we talked about the, the question that says, what is written in the law? And how Jesus had total confidence in the Word of God. And for the last three weeks, we've been talking about the evidence for the Word of God. And I gave you an acronym. Do anybody remember what the acronym was? MAP, thank you. Manuscript evidence, archaeological evidence, and prophetic evidence that gives credence to the Word of God. It's still a step of faith, right? To believe the Word of God as the Word of God. But it's a much bigger step of faith to reject the Word of God as the Word of God with all the evidence behind the fact that this is an amazing book that God wrote through various individuals over 1,600 years. In fact, uh, yesterday I was at a meeting in San Diego and met with some folks, and then afterwards I was sitting there. It was a beautiful day. I went out on the pa this patio, sat there, and reviewed my sermon. I had my laptop open, and I heard some people next to me, the table next to me, talking, and they mentioned church. And so being the uh, non-nosy person that I am, I, I said, hey, I, I heard you mention church. You go to church. Are you a believer in Christ? And he said, yes, I am. He said, are you? I said, yes, I am. He goes, well, well, what do you do? I said, well, I'm a pastor at Riverview Church. Where's that? In Bonzel. I have a friend that lives up there. He's looking for a church. I said, here's my card. He said, hey, pastor, let me ask you a question. I have a friend. We were just talking about him. And uh, he says he believes in God, and he reads the Bible, but he doesn't believe all these stories like Jonah in the belly of this great fish for three days and three nights, like the parting of the Red Sea. What should I tell him? What should I tell him? He doesn't believe in the story of Jonah and the Red Sea, and he's like all that. I don't believe that, but I believe in God. What would you tell him? What would you say? What would your response be? Uh, thank you, uh, Brady. Jesus believed it, right? Jesus referred, and I told him this. This is my second thing. Jesus referred to the story of Jonah and said, just like Jonah was in the belly of this great fish for three days and three nights, so the Son of Man will be in the heart of the earth. Was the story of Jonah an allegory? Was it a nice fairy tale? No. Well, it was the story of Jesus being in the earth for three days days and three nights of fairy tale. No, it really happened. Jesus referred to it as a real event. Before I said that, though, I said to him, you know, it always amazes me how someone can believe in God. The God that created 400 billion galaxies and not believe that this same God can cause a great fish to swallow Jonah. I said to him, what I would tell him is, if you can get past Genesis 1-1, right? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. 
every miracle of the Bible should be easy to accept because God has no problem performing that. If he can create 400 billion galaxies, then he has no problem causing a great fish to swallow Jonah and keeping him alive in the belly of that fish for three days and three nights. That's not a problem for God. He had his feet up on that one. That's easy for God. And we started you know, talking about different things. It was turned out it was his birthday that day. And they, I saw they had this big cake. And I said, well, actually it was my birthday two days ago, hoping they'd give me a piece of cake, but they didn't. So uh, we had a great talk, though, about spiritual things. And it was just cool to connect. But there's a, 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 a conviction we should have about the Word of God. In fact, my daughter was telling me who's going to Fuller Theological Seminary. She uh, serves on the staff at the... Um, Calvary Chapel in Carlsbad and she was uh, taking courses from Fuller and is now and she said yeah I was telling her the story about this guy I encountered and what I told him and he said yeah dad it's sad because even at Fuller my prof even though there's some very evangelical Bible believing professors there are some that are liberal and my professor said oh yeah Jonah that's just an allegory why would you ever give that up there's no reason to unless your God is impotent your God isn't powerful. Your God can't do miracles. And if he can't, he's not worthy of our worship. That's why we're here today. We serve an awesome God who can do amazing things. The question today that we're looking at is this one. Where are we to buy bread? I'd like you to open your Bibles to John chapter 6. Man, I spent way too long on that. Time is fleeting. We got to go. John chapter 6. If you don't have your Bibles, there should be one nearby, page 891, in your chair Bibles. This is a familiar miracle, but it gives us insight into how to live an abundant life. Let's read it. It says this. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is in the northern region of Israel, which is called the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him. Why? Why were they following him? Well, it says right here, because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then, and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, here's the question, where are we to buy bread? It seems like an innocent question, but there's a lot more behind it than just how are we going to feed this, these people so that these people may eat. He said this to test him, for he knew himself what he would do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii. How much is a denarius worth in those days? About a day's wage, right? So Philip says, 200 days' wages. It's quite a bit of money. Shows you how many people were there. Would not buy enough food for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? These are probably five little loaves and two fish that a mom packed for her son for his lunch. Not much food at all. Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. If you count the women and children, probably seven, 8,000 people there. Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, they, they were filled up. Jesus told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments, that nothing may be lost. 
So they gathered them up and filled how many baskets? Twelve. How many disciples were there? Twelve. Already a powerful connection. I'll get back to that later. They filled up 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this indeed is the prophet who has come into the world. The bottom line is this. Jesus gave a powerful object lesson to his disciples and to us, which challenged them to live in such a way that would allow them to experience the reality of being truly abundant in Christ. See, when Jesus came to this earth, He said this, if you believe in me, I will give you life and give it to you abundantly. God does not want us to live a mediocre life. God does not want us to live a life impoverished in our spirit. He wants us to live a life that is filled up with meaning and purpose. See, this was a real event, not an object lesson, not only, uh, but it was a real event that happened. Not an allegory, not a little fairy tale. It happened in the northern region of Israel by the Sea of Galilee. And from the text, here's the first thing I think we should remember. That even though you're with Jesus, challenges will come. Challenges will come. Even when you are with Jesus, there's nothing worse uh, than a large crowd than if that large crowd is a what crowd? Hungry crowd, right? They're a hungry crowd. We've experienced that at times when we don't have the donuts out uh, right away after service. There's a mass rebellion. There's a rebellion going on, angry people turning over the tables. Where are our donuts? So you don't want a hungry crowd, right? We We want to see God meet this challenge. But here's the reality. Here's something we need to remember. Even with Jesus, there are challenges in life. Jesus, what do we do How do we solve this need? Where will we buy bread? We have no resources to buy this bread. Jesus already knew what he was going to do. And I want to tell you that in our lives at times, there will be problems. There will be challenges. We're not to be surprised by them. I had one guy say to me a number of years ago, man, I tried this Jesus thing, and it didn't work for me. I came to faith. I put my faith in Jesus. My problems didn't go away. I thought they would. My problems increased. Well, I said to him, you know, you came to Jesus for the wrong reason. You don't come to Jesus thinking that all your problems will disappear. He's not a genie in a lamp that if you rub the lamp the right way, he'll give you all of your wishes. That's not Jesus. You come to Jesus knowing that you still live in a world that's filled with sin and rebellion, and there are trials and hardships in this life. But here's the amazing promise. Jesus says this, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. And by the way, I'm going to take those challenges and those problems and those trials, and I will cause them to be an amazing source of growth in your life. There are people out there uh, who teach a false doctrine. It's called prosperity theology. It teaches that if you have enough faith, you'll be wealthy and you'll be healthy. You won't be sick. If you're sick, it's because you have a lack of faith. My mom, who passed away, experienced people like that. She lived down in Florida. They came to visit her house. She didn't really know them, but they came by to visit. And they told her... um, Ma'am, if you just have more faith, God will heal you. God will restore you. 
And my mom, totally distraught over that kind of challenge, like, what am I doing wrong? They said that uh, my faith wasn't strong enough, yet I have total faith in God. See, that's not what the Bible teaches. In fact, we see all throughout the Bible godly people like the apostles and disciples who are suffering for their faith. Paul's thorn in the flesh, Timothy having these ailments in his stomach, and Jesus, the founder, author, and perfecter of our faith, who at the age of 33 was nailed to a cross and hung there for six hours with nothing except a piece of clothing that the soldiers gambled on. See, there's this false teaching out there that's working its way around the church that have come to Jesus. He's going to solve all my needs and problems and give me everything I ever wanted when it comes to wealth and health. That's not the case. Now, Jesus does heal. I've, I've experienced people who have been healed. I believe I had a miracle nine years ago when I experienced my heart attack out of the blue, didn't know it was coming. The doctors were telling my family, call your relatives It doesn't look good. If he does survive, he'll be in a nursing home the rest of his life. God does miracles, but he doesn't always do them the way we want. God is working out his greater plan. Challenges come even with Jesus. There's a verse in the book of 2 Timothy. It goes like this. There's a time coming, uh, Paul wrote to Timothy, when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. They, they don't like what the Bible says about these problems. And they'll create these doctrines that sound really good, and they tickle the ears of people that hear them. But it's a false teaching. See, we're not to fall into this ear-tickling doctrine. We're to follow what the Word of God says. We're to expect the fact that in this world there will be trials. Like Jesus said in John 16, he said this, Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you'll be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. Even Jesus took great comfort in the fact that he is never alone. I hope you sense that today in your life as a Christian. You are never alone. Jesus promised, I will never leave you, never forsake you. Whatever your challenge is, whatever your trial is, whatever your problem is, he's going to be right there with you. That's the great promise of the word of God, of Jesus who's alive today. And he said this, I've said these things that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. How did he overcome the world? When he died and rose again, he won that amazing victory over this world, over death, over sin. Death no longer has the sting it once had because Jesus rose again from the dead. Here's the second thing I want you to remember. Time is flying. Challenges become opportunities to vividly see God at work. I don't know what your challenge is. I don't know what your problem is. Maybe it's in a relationship of yours. Maybe it's in your marriage. Maybe it's in your family. But, but the word of God tells us, and from this passage, Philip was being tested by Jesus. Hey, Philip, do you have the faith to believe that Jesus can make a difference in this challenge of a hungry crowd? Can he make a difference? Yes, he can. Turn it over to Jesus. 
turn it over to Jesus. It might not come out exactly as you desire. It might not be the outcome that you were exactly looking for, but the promise is clear from God's word that he will work all things together for good to those who love him and are called according to his promise. See, don't fall into defeatism. God, there's a challenge. I can't believe I'm facing this challenge. I'm giving up. Like that one guy told me, I'm, I'm, I'm walking away from the faith. I have more problems now as a Christian than I had before I came to faith in Christ. See, Jesus was testing Philip. I want to ask you this. You know, when you're in school, right, and a teacher hands out a test. My son took his SAT yesterday. He was studying for this test, this SAT. Now, in school, the tests are designed to inform the teacher about where you're at and what grade to give you. But that's not true with God. God knows everything about you. These tests are not designed to tell God anything. He knows everything about you. Who are the tests for that we encounter? Yeah, they're for us. Uh, they're, They're designed for us. Even James in the book of James, talks about the testing of our faith. And if you can turn there, if you'd like, James chapter 1, really powerful passage. It says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. He doesn't say if. He doesn't say, well, there's a possibility you might experience. No, he says, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So instead of saying, hey, God, why me? Why am I facing this challenge? There are other Christians over there. They're not facing this challenge. Why me? Instead of that, we're to say, what do you think is a better response? What are you trying to teach me, God? From James and his testing of Philip right here in John chapter 6, he's testing Philip to grow him up in his faith. Hey, God, in this challenge that I'm facing, what are you trying to teach me? What's the area of my life that needs to change? See, the testing is designed to help us identify where our growth edges are, where we need to grow our faith, where we need to have more faith in Jesus and see him do amazing things. I define a test as this. Difficult circumstances. Do we have difficult circumstances in this life? Yes, we do. As followers of Jesus, yes, we do. We all have them. As a pastor, Mel, do you have difficult circumstances? Yes, absolutely. See, they give us opportunities to apply the Word of God, leading to growth in our faith and character, that when we test the Word of God and put it into action, we see how amazing And then encouraging us to trust God as He works toward a good result. You might say, well, Mel, what if, what if nine years ago when you had your heart attack, you died? Is that a good result? That sounds like a bad result to me. What happens to me when I die as a believer in Jesus Christ? Yeah, you go to heaven, right? You go to heaven. What happens to my family if I die? Yeah, they're in the hands of an amazing God. And even though I would have missed these nine years with my kids and my wife, I trust God. I want to trust God. God, if, if that had been the last day of my life, I trust you to take care of my wife and family. 
I trust you in every circumstance because I know you're working it out for a good result. See, it's that kind of faith that God wants in us. It's that kind of faith that God wants in this church. Hey, that we would trust to trust God and see him work in amazing ways. See, what defeatism sounds like is this. Hey, you know what? We can't meet that need as a church. Well, that's asking way too much. No, that's never been done before. We're going to fail. Well, if they decide to move forward with that step of faith, fine. But don't expect my help. That's what defeatism sounds like. Have I experienced that as a pastor in a church over the years? Yes, I have. Have I seen that in my own life at times? That attitude creeping up? Yes, I have. And what Jesus wants in us is to trust him and to walk through these challenges and see him do amazing things. See, when we face a challenge, our supply is really limited. It's very limited. But behind all of that is a God who promises, if I ask you to do something, I will also give you the power and the strength to do it. To use your wisdom, yes, to make wise choices. But if I've called you to live a certain way, I'm going to give you the strength and the power to do it. That God's supply is infinite to help us in everything he's called us to do. Here's the third thing. Challenges are wisely addressed by inviting Jesus to get involved. Now, what would have happened if Andrew had said, hey, there's a small young boy here. He's got five little loaves, two fish. If I give them to Jesus, he's going to give them to others, and his own disciples will be here starving. Hey, disciples, gather around. Let's just have a little bit ourselves. We won't be fully satisfied, but at least we won't be hungry. But don't bring them to Jesus. He'll give them to everybody else. If Andrew had done that, they never would have seen Jesus work the way he did that day. The wise thing Andrew does is he takes those meager resources and gives them to Jesus. And Jesus takes them and multiplies this little bit of food beyond their wildest imaginations. See, they invited Jesus to get involved. They invited Jesus to get involved. Can you imagine the story that boy had when he went home to his mother that day? Hey, Mom, you wouldn't believe what happened to my lunch today. It fed seven, 8,000 people. See, we're to reject self-sufficiency. We're, to, we're not to say, hey, man, this is my life. I can handle it on my own. I don't need God. I don't want him in my life. I reject him. That's a self-sufficient life. But to be a person that says, God, I want you involved in my life. And I want the resources that you've entrusted to me to be used for your honor and glory. You might say, what are those resources? What are those? Here they are. There's three of them. One is, I don't have time to read the verses, but your time is a resource. How do you use your time every day? Is there even a thought of, hey, God, how can I use my time today to glorify you, to, to be a testimony for you? How can I use my time today not to just build my kingdom, but to first and foremost build your kingdom and make you known on this planet? And then my talents and gifts. There are numerous passages about the, the body of Christ and how every one of you has a gift and ability and how God has called us to use them. And when you start using them, you start realizing, I am part of something so much bigger than myself. 
I am part of building the kingdom of God. Hey, I don't know if we need to, if, is it feeling a little warm in here now? Can we spin those spinners? I don't know if maybe some of them have been spun off or maybe the one downstairs because I'm feeling some warm air blowing in and I don't want you to be sweaty, amen? I don't want you sweating next to that person who's trying to study the Bible. Here's the next thing. Treasure, your treasure, your financial resources. If you hoard it to yourself and never give, never have a heart of being a cheerful giver, you're not being the person that God has called us to be. So your time, your talents, and your treasure, saying, Lord, I'm a steward. You've entrusted what's yours to me. I don't own it. You've entrusted it to me. Help me to have the wisdom to invite you into this process, into this life that you've given me. Every day when you wake up, your, your thought ought, ought not to be, how can I serve myself today? How can I get what I want today? Your thought ought to be, God, how can you use me today? How can you use my resources today? I bring them to you. And I want to see you do an amazing miracle beyond what I could ask or think. Here's the fourth thing. Challenge our, challenges are most effectively met when we surrender our resources to Christ. Have you told Jesus, hey, Lord, my life is yours? Maybe you've placed your faith and trust in him, but have you said, Lord, my life is yours. Everything I own is yours. Give me the wisdom to use these resources wisely like Andrew did. He gave those five little loaves and two fish to Jesus, and Jesus did an awesome miracle. See, if all that I have is from God and belongs to him, I have a choice every day to say yes or no to that. If I say no to that, what happens? I use what I have for me first. And then what happens after that? I passionately pursue instant gratifications. Feelings fade as I realize pursuing my desires leads to emptiness. And this emptiness returns and a feeling of desperation and despair sets in. I think I shared with you a few years ago, a good friend of mine was the chaplain for the Atlanta Braves. His name was Walt. Walt would do the Sunday services for the Atlanta Braves. These guys were multi-millionaires. They had everything the world says you should have to be happy. But he called me one day and said, we were talking, and, and he said, Mel, these are some of the most unhappy guys I've ever met in my life. I'm like, Walt, what are you talking about? He said, Mel, their whole life, they thought, thank you so much, I can feel the cool air. Can you feel it? Yeah, that's nice. Uh, their whole life, they were thinking, if I become a professional baseball player, then I'll have the boats and the cars and the houses and the money and the fame, and I will be happy. And they became professional baseball players. And they got all of that. And they realized there was still this God-shaped vacuum emptiness inside of their lives. And he said, Mel, they're trying to fill it with everything. They're so desperate because they're not happy. They realize, bottom line, this doesn't bring happiness and significance to their lives. They're desperate. They're some of the most unhappy guys I've ever met. See, and that's when Jesus met when he said, if you lose your life for my sake, it's then that you'll find it. When you bring your life to Jesus and say, Jesus, my resources are yours. I want to serve you first, not me. It's not about me. Lord, it's about you. When you do that, all of the promises of God's word begin to kick in. That, that, that statement of living an abundant life, 
that Jesus made, you begin to realize what that's all about. Because finally now, your life is making a difference for all of eternity. When I was down in San Diego yesterday, beautiful buildings, large buildings, they all will be knocked down one day. The only thing you will ever do in your life that will have an impact for all of eternity is that which is done for Jesus Christ. It's taking the time you have and the resources and saying, Lord, they are yours. When you do that, what happens is this. You use what you have for Christ first. That's your first concern. Not that you can't use them on yourself, but your first concern is, how can I use these resources for you first, Jesus? There's a joy of sacrificing for Christ and the satisfaction of making an eternal impact enters your life. And the reality of purpose and fulfillment and understanding why you were created and why you are here, that purpose and fulfillment is found in Jesus. It says in Matthew 14 in a powerful a par- a parallel passage, it says this, he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples and the disciples gave them to the crowds. Could Jesus in his power have just said, okay, everybody line up over here and uh, come through and I'll, I'm going to give you all the bread or I'm going to allow this bread to be miraculously distributed to all 5,000 of you. He could have done that w- that way. But he gets the disciples involved in the miracle. They are the ones distributing the resources. They are the ones giving the food to the people. That's exactly what he wants you to experience. As you get involved in a church or a ministry anywhere that glorifies Jesus and makes him known, you are now getting involved in this amazing miracle of changing lives. If you want to see a miracle happen, Talk to people that have been truly changed by the power of Jesus Christ. And you're involved in that as you use your resources for Jesus Christ. See, God loves to involve us in the miracle. He loves for us to join his work. In uh, John chapter 16, at the end of the passage, back to this passage, it says they gathered up and filled the 12 baskets and fragments. We already talked about that. 12 disciples, how many baskets? 12 baskets. These were not little small Easter baskets, by the way. The word baskets here in the Greek is the Greek word kofanos. It's the Greek word from which we get the English word what? Coffin, exactly. These were big baskets filled with food. The disciples learned that that day. If they had been selfish and kept those resources to themselves, they would have had a little bit. But like the dog chasing its tail, never quite gets there, never quite fulfilled. But because they gave what they had to Jesus, not only were they filled up, but there were 12 baskets left over, baskets overflowing, one basket for each of them, more than they could even imagine. So as you get to the end of your life, may you avoid this self-centered consumerism that it's all about me and what I want. It's not about living for yourself. It's beyond that. It's living for Jesus He said this, do not labor for the food that perishes later on in the same chapter, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. And he said these amazing words, I am the bread of life. I am the bread of life. That was the meaning behind the miracle. 
That was the purpose of the miracle, for the disciples to know that true satisfaction is found in Christ. I love what Harry Ironside said. Christ is a substitute for everything, but nothing is a substitute for Christ. Nothing will substitute for him. You'll have that God-shaped vacuum in your life, your entire life without him. So as you leave today, Commit your resources to Christ, your time, your talents, your treasure. Reject self-centered living and living for myself. Train your mind, renew your mind to say, I'm living for Jesus. Look for ways in which God will do his work through your efforts and see God deliver a life of abundance in your heart and your soul. He will. But you have to have a radical change in your thinking. It's not about me. It's about living for Jesus. It's about living for him. Amen, church? Amen. Let's bow our hearts in prayer. And as your hearts are bowed today, my prayer would be that every one of you would be incredibly grateful for a God that loves you all the way to the cross. We remembered that today by taking the bread and the cup. But beyond that, he desires for you to live a life of abundance, not a life caught up in self-centered living, but a life in which you say, Lord, I die to myself, I live for you. And Jesus said, when you say that, when you do that, it's then you will truly live. Lord, we love you today. We pray that as we leave this place, we would see the challenges all around us and realize that with you, we can conquer those challenges with your presence in our lives and see you do amazing things by changing our heart and our mind and changing the lives of others. Help us not to diminish you, God. Try to put you in our little box and control you. But Lord, today we pray that you would control us, that you would control our lives. Our lives are yours. They are yours, Jesus. And we pray this in your matchless name. Amen. Let's all stand and sing this song. Your love is greater. Your love is stronger. Your love awakens, awakens, awakens. Your love is greater. Your love is stronger. Your love awakens, awakens. Let's sing it again. Your love is greater. Your love is stronger. elders up front would love to pray with you. Please greet one another and live this week. All for him. God bless you. See you on the patio.